0: visit the all-in-gospel.com website. All gospelcom right, website we're in Deuteronomy 7 tonight. You can click or flip to there. Verse one, when the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and cast out many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater greater and mightier than you. And when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show no mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter for your son, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. So the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. There's tons there. I'm going to slow down on this first paragraph and I'll go a little faster as we get into the second half of the chapter. Um, Contextually, Moses restated the Ten Commandments. And then he started to expound on those commandments. And the last time, Deuteronomy 6, he started to expound on commandment number one, serve the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, the Shema. And And then he started to expound on the second one, which is you shall have no idols. So in context of how this book looks, this discussion of what's going to happen next is in part a dialogue on the Ten Commandments and how to carry them forward. And this idea of idol worship and what's going on. Note at the beginning of verse one, it says, when the Lord, it's not if the Lord, or if you conquer the Canaanites, it's when this happens, uh, which is an example of Moses, just his complete faith in the power of God to do anything. Um, And he points out like these seven nations are mightier than you at the end of verse one. So not only is it improbable that they would beat seven nations in a row that are stronger than they are, but Moses thinks it's actually certain that it will happen, because it's not on their own strength, it's on God's strength that all of this is going to happen. So that's the truth. And again, I'll go back to that idea of there's the truth as we see it in the flesh, there's lying about that truth, or ignoring that truth that we see in the flesh. And then there's the truth as God presents it to us. And they're very, very different things, all three of those. And the truth as God presents it is that these seven nations aren't even a problem because he's going to do it. And he's the agent of the action in there. Um, God brings you into the land. We possess it. God casts out nations before you. That's a happy sandwich. God does the beginning part. He does the end part. And in the middle, we just get to possess. And and the inheritance or are the rewards of becoming a believer look a lot like that. He draws us with the Holy Spirit. We accept Christ and get to enjoy the blessings of God. And he does almost everything for us. And that's kind of the model we've seen so far in Deuteronomy. It says, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. God expects through Moses for them to follow this command. So this destruction idea comes up again, and I'm going to take more time on it tonight because Danny says I can, and it's okay to repeat myself a little bit. Um, He does the delivering, but they have to do their part too. And their part is utter destruction of the Canaanites some people struggle with idea. This is what the concept is called total war. That when you make war on one nation on, against another nation, you make total war upon them. There's a whole game series called total war. And the idea is there's nothing held back. And that when you get into this mode where you're doing this, the attempt is to utterly destroy that nation that stands against your nation. So total war is that kind of combat. And that kind of combat, even women and children and civilians get killed. So the utter destruction here is in that note. So war, as horrible as it is, when you actually get into a war with people you can't be reasoning with, the idea is to end it as quick as possible, and that often means an act of force. So this is military, welcome to the, the Army 101 kind of stuff. Um, an act of force then, when it's held back, is not often the force that's needed to end it, right? So the goal of war is to get out of war as quick as possible. Um, This is the same kind of logic that comes and I don't know uh, when it's triggered when this kind of war this kind of action against the people happens. uh, It's hopefully a conclusive ending so you don't continue to have problems later on. This is why World War One turned into World War Two is because there were issues that weren't resolved it wasn't totally concluded. So that's kind of what's being said here when it says don't make covenant with them don't show mercy don't make marriages the idea is if you don't end this completely, it's going to be a persistent problem for the nation of Israel from here forward. And in fact, as we go through the Bible, that's exactly what happens. They don't obey this command, but the command is to destroy the Canaanites utterly, and each kind of people group is named and listed there. Um, the word Sihan is in there, um, or I'm sorry, Sihon is in there too. When we're talking about these groups of people, uh, In Numbers 21 through 23, there's this kind of side narrative with Sahan who gathers a group of people together to attack the Israelites. Now, here's the thing. At the time, that seemed like an odd little narrative to have in the book of Numbers. But it's for us here, it's important to note that we're dealing with mostly nomadic people that move around with their sheep and their flocks and their herds of livestock. And we should also note this other thing, because I'm going to shift the tone on this a little bit we've also been 40 years in the wilderness. With the Sahan story, we know that the other nations knew Israel was out there, and they knew through their own priests that Israel was going to move into Canaan. So that means that any of the Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Parasites, Jebusites, Hivites, all of them knew Israel was coming. They've known it for 40 years, and they've actually made attacks on Israel working with the king of Sihon. Does this make sense? So this has been a long term kind of thing. And even their own priests that try to curse Israel are coming back to the king saying, I can't curse Israel, the God that I'm talking to is actually with Israel. So I can't do anything to them, they're protected, you need to get out of the way. So God's been giving these people 40 years to move their herds and flocks up to Turkey, out to Syria, they could go south into Egypt or in the other direction they could go any number of directions. And in fact, archaeologically, we see Canaanites during this period of history spread all over the place. And there's no clear signs of Canaanite destruction because a number of them had left. And the, and really, Jericho is about the only city that gets taken down. Most of these cities they're coming into are kind of empty when the Israelites get there. But there are still remaining forces that want to fight and make their final stands, but they're doing it despite a spiritual battle that's already been won, and they're doing it despite the fact that they've got the Israelites moving into the territory. So that said, in this particular passage, there are passages where God tells them to destroy people and kill people. I don't know if this is that passage, and here's why. It says destroy them, and it seems to have to do more with the sins and the false gods that are being worshipped, not the people. And there's three indicators in this passage, and if you want to circle them, you can. First of all, it says the the word destroy is there, and you shall destroy them, uh, is the word karam. It, that is not muth, and it's not uh, the other word for killing. What was the other word for killing? Muth was one, and I forgot the other one. The word karam actually means to ban, prohibit, or consecrate something. And yet they translated it in English to destroy. So it's not, And if you look at the Hebrew in this, uh, it is not the word you would expect. Oh, r- rasash is the other word. So there's murder and there's killing. Muth and rasash. It's neither of those. It's karam, which means to prohibit or to consecrate something. So it's a spiritual word. It's not. Ex- it doesn't actually mean to kill people. Here's the second indicator. Notice the order of commands God gives. In verse two, they're supposed to destroy. But then in the same verse, it says, don't make covenants with them. If they're destroyed, if they obey the first command, there shouldn't be any people left to make covenants with. And then in verse three, it says, don't marry them. Again, if if we read destroy in the English, in the connotation that we have in the English, then how would you marry people that you've destroyed? So the order here is don't destroy them, or ban them, prohibit them, or consecrate them, dedicate them for elimination, and then don't make covenants with them and don't get married to them. There's an assumption that there's still people in the land. Does this make sense? And I thought this was kind of neat. So the target of destruction then seems to be physical objects, these false gods, which would be commentary on commandment number two, which fits the context of exactly what we've been doing in Deuteronomy. Here's the third indicator. It also says in verse five, but thus you shall deal with them. And the key is, who is them? Is it the people of the Gergeshites? <clears throat> Or is them the false idols that they're worshiping? Are we dealing with the people group here? Are we dealing with the gods that they worship? And I would suggest that this command is, is, in light of the second commandment, is to get rid of the false idols. You're going to destroy all of them, ban them to consecrate them, or to get rid of them. And notice in verse five that what they're supposed to do to deal with them, to follow through with this order, is destroy altars, break down pillars, cut down the wooden images, and burn carved images with fire. All four of those things have to do with actual idols that these people are worshiping. So when it says to go into the land and destroy them, it could also mean that we're just talking about the idols that they're worshiping. And that has something to do with all of those three clues. Like There's still people there and they've had 40 years to get lost if they wanted to, but they're still going to have battles. There's still going to be people in the land that want to fight the people of God and actually carry a sword and do battle with them. But in this particular context, it seems to be that there's specific acts that they're supposed to be doing, and all of those specific acts have to do with the idols that these people worship. So anyways, to destroy, to break, to burn altars and images, total war here seems to be a total spiritual war with the gods of these people. We're gonna eradicate any sign of false gods that are in this territory. Part of this has to do with, and I don't know how far I've gotten into this before, but the Canaanites worship some pretty sick gods. That the, the pure religion of serving or worshiping Yahweh, Jehovah, has disintegrated since Joseph, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were in this land. It's disintegrated badly. And people often take things that are good and holy and disintegrate it into really ugly kinds of worship. We see that all over in the Christian church in the last 2,000 years. We've seen Christian churches do very bad things in the name of God because it's degenerated. And in fact, over time, we don't see an evolution of religion. We generally see a disintegration of religion until God reinstates it with a new group of people and even miracles to reinstate groups of people. Right? So... In this case, it's the same way. Just to mention three. One of the gods the Canaanites worship was Moloch. And Moloch, I don't know how much you know about Moloch, but Moloch's basically a god of power. And if you really want power, the most powerful thing you can give Moloch is the life force of a human being. So human sacrifices are part of what they're doing here. And a lot of times you get people that were the high priests of Moloch, and they would pick people that they wanted to sacrifice that were their enemies politically. So politically speaking, you get to a very vicious kind of culture where if you're in the losing side of a political argument, the priests work with you and you assassinate the people you don't like through Moloch worship, right? Or even worse, you have, you go to a big Moloch party where there's kind of a large, huge, or you go to an Ashtaroth party, which is one of their other gods, and everybody has sex freely and it's a big kind of, you know, jump around and dance around the Asheroth poles. And and it's a a giant orgy and you have unwanted babies because they didn't have birth control. And then you go to Moloch and you sacrifice your baby on the altar of Moloch. In fact, Moloch altars were built that way. Moloch would have his hands extended and he'd be made of some sort of metal. So when you light the furnace inside his belly, the heat would go down the arms and make the hands into a kind of frying pan. So when you throw the baby on the frying pan, it would scream, And what you do is if you're serving Moloch is you make more noise than the baby. So you wash out the sound of the killing baby. This is the kind of religion that was going on in this land. And God's saying, get rid of all of it. We don't want any of this kind of worship going on. You never sacrifice human life for your own benefit, ever. Asheroth is another one. I already mentioned Ashtaroth. That's a female god. It has to do with fertility. You want your crops to do well in the year, then you let yourself get lost and you go in and see temple prostitutes and all that sort of thing. So it's prostitution, right? And then you got the Baals, who the Bible makes a big deal with Baals. The reason why they stick around is the Baals are like any polytheistic religion, like the Greek gods and the Roman gods. The Baals of the Canaanites there was a Baal for everything. And if they didn't have one, you just make one up. So, and you have little Baals around your house and they have power in various kinds of ways. And you ascribe power to these idols because the Baal's spirits would live inside these inanimate objects. So when you fall asleep at night and the nutcracker prince goes to save the mouse, you're putting life into something with an inanimate object. And people just do that. So uh, it says, you shall not make any marriages with them, Part of that is because when you marry someone who worships other gods, they will bring their gods into your marriage. And that will be part of what your children then deal with. And that's exactly what God's talking about here. Don't marry with them so that your children have to struggle with that culture. This is not, as some people would argue, a, a set of marriage rules. This is a set of rules about who you want to connect with spiritually. And when you get married, that's a spiritual connection. So Americans are programmed to see this, don't see make marriages with the Canaanites. We automatically see that as a culture war. And that's just how we're wired, because it's how we train everybody from kindergarten. That, oh, this is horrible. The Israelites have cultural resistance or walls up against the Canaanites. But biblically speaking, people are not divided by nationality anywhere in the Bible. In fact, we've already seen the laws of Israel. There are laws for strangers to become Israelites. So no matter who you are, where you come from, what culture you're from, what city you're from, what nation you're from, you can become an Israelite just by serving Jehovah. It's a it's a decision that you make and your ethnicity actually changes. And that's God's law. And spiritual alignment then becomes almost interchangeable with national alignment. And I think that's what's going on in these verses. That the spiritual alignment of the people either has to come into Israel or they need to be gone. Because God's about done with these kinds of worships. So there's only two groups of people. Biblically, there's the godly and there's the ungodly. But in America, we see many, many more divisions between people. And we don't see it in a biblical sense. But if we go all the way back to Genesis, there was one man and one woman. And biblically speaking, that trajectory or that tree goes all the way out. And so, for they will turn your sons in verse 4 is a point of rationale. The whole point of this is that you don't want marriages with these people so that your kids don't get corrupted. And I'm gonna talk more about that in a little bit when I talk about dolls. Couple examples first of marriages or of what I'm talking about. Trust my word on it, the Bible has examples of this. Rahab was a harlot and a Canaanite. Maybe a harlot against her will and a Canaanite. She married an Israelite, Joshua 6.25. And then it says, "'And Joshua saved Rahab the harlot alive, and her father's household, and all that she had, and she dwelleth in Israel even unto this day, because she hid with the messengers which Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. So Rahab being in the line of Jesus doesn't seem to corrupt the gene pool or anything like that. That's not a biblical idea. That's an idea that comes straight out of the 1800s with Charles Darwin, right? In in the biblical perspective, Rahab can come, she can come into the nation by marriage if she accepts Jehovah as her God. So when it says, don't marry their sons and daughters, and that would be a clear violation of that if she worshipped her false idols. But notice the passage in Joshua is that she actually sided with Israel, therefore she could marry an Israelite and that wasn't a problem. So the Bible never contradicts itself. So that means we need to understand this passage in terms of spiritual warfare, not in terms of cultural battles against other people. Does that walking with me on that one. Here's another example where Rahab is not a problem because she's right in the genealogy in Matthew 1. There's another woman that's listed in Jesus's genealogy who's not an Israelite by birth either. Mandy's nodding. Do you know what it is? Ruth. Ruth. She has her own book in the Bible, and she's not an Israelite. So God doesn't seem to have a problem with non-Israelites. She's a Moabite, in fact, and the Moabites are a group of people that we've already had issues with in the book of Numbers, right? So, and I like to think of the Moabites as not a good group of people, but here's Ruth, who's a Moabitess. She's listed in the genealogy of Matthew. And prior to her, her marriage, she expressed faith in Jehovah and her ethnicity changed because there's only two kinds of people. Here's that passage, Ruth 1.16. And Ruth said, entreat me not to leave, to return from following after you, for wherever you go, I will go. And wherever you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God shall be my God. That's a confession of faith. Boom, she's an Israelite. It's just that easy. It's still just that easy with Jesus. There's people who follow after Jesus and people who don't. And all that really needs to be said is a clear declaration of devotion and a a request to be forgiven of your sins. Jesus cleanses you, you're adopted into the family, welcome to the nation. So God's view of people is a choice, and the view, his view of who we are is what choice we pick in our heart, which goes with Moses' teaching on commandment number one. It's all very consistent. God blessed Ruth, and he used Ruth to actually bless the entire world. So there's an end game to this too. I got one more. Ver- I went a little crazy with this, I admit it. This idea that there's only two groups of people, it goes all the way to the book of Revelation. It's the end game plan too. And it goes like this. After this, I looked and there before me was a great multitude that nobody could count from every nation, every tribe, people and language standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and the Lamb. The whole vision of God is at the end of the day, All the people of the earth have a choice to make, and he gathers people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to come serve him at his throne. That's a beautiful thought. This is not God saying, kill all the parasites or cellulites or (laughs) whoever. This is God saying, get rid of the false gods. Commandment number two. Don't have anything to do with them. Don't marry people that worship them. Don't go, don't hang out, don't yoke with unbelievers that idea that there's believers and unbelievers, and the line that needs to be drawn between them is a very biblical idea. Now, if we want to talk about your struggle with that, that's a discussion that, you, that the Bible's willing to have. The war or the other utter destruction of false gods is absolutely what God's trying to talk about. Okay, idol worship. Verse 5, but thus you shall deal with them, destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. In none of those situations does anything living get damaged, but oh, the warfare we're going to have over burning some of these things down. That's hard to translate to today because we don't have a bunch of pillars, right? We don't have false idols all over the place, right? We don't have these things. So it's hard to think that we would have any battle to do. Um, but the two go together and they have some issues where they get into it. I'm going to suggest we have idols all over the place because humans are really good at ascribing life to things that don't have life. And I'm going to give you a really basic example of this. Dolls. And this is where I geeked out and went a little too far on the internet. Why would a statue matter? This I, I couldn't get this. Why would it matter if I have a little nutcracker sitting on my table over there? right? Or why would it matter if I have a little statue of Buddha on my bookshelf for decoration? Who cares? Like, Why would the God of the universe care if we have action figures and dolls for kids? They seem so innocuous. But that's the thing is that it is a big deal to God because something happens in the human brain to various degrees with various people where we start to give meaning to this. It's how we form traditions, right? Is that we start to just do something. We do it two, three years in a row, and now it's a tradition. We have to do it. And we chain ourselves to those traditions because they make us feel comfortable. Because if we can repeat, repeat things that felt good as many times and as, with as much fidelity as possible, we can, know, we can expect to continue to feel good about things. So these idols will turn your sons away. Idols often start with kids. God doesn't say in this passage that the idols will turn you away it says the idols will turn their sons and daughters away. So that was a clue for me. Idol worship is a generational problem. So I might have a nutcracker in my house, but I should be really careful about how I train in my kids and how we talk about it. And I made a mistake with this. I was a horrible dad with this. Every time we'd go into a toy store, I'd find the cutest looking stuffed animal, and then I would hide behind it and have the stuffed animal poke out as my kids walked by and they would go, hello, Katie, how are you? And it'd be this cute, fluffy puppy. And Katie would stop and start talking to the puppy. And very quickly, they would then want the stuffed animals. And I wouldn't do this unless I was ready to get them one, you know, it's just whatever. But that would be the one that said, take me home with you, please. And I'd make them start talking. I don't have a spiritual struggle with that, but getting our kids to give up those stuffed animals when they became grown-ups was very difficult because we weren't just getting rid of fabric and stuffing. We were getting rid of something that had a name and a personality. Bridget the alligator almost destroyed my son when we left left her behind in the South Dakota Black Hills at a hotel. I mean, it was a trauma moment for Grant because Bridget the alligator is all alone. He described life to the inanimate object. We do this as humans. So, In the Smithsonian Magazine, Linda Rodriguez McRobbie, I love that name, says this, Our brains are designed to read faces for important information about intentions, emotions, and potential threats. Indeed, we're so primed to see faces and respond to them that we see them everywhere in streaked windows, smears of marmite, toast, banana peels. More neurotic people also are more likely to see faces in inanimate objects as some researchers argue, is because their brains are more attuned to potential threats. The weaker your personality, the more prone you are to ascribe life to things that aren't alive. Weird, right? However, much of what we know, (laughs) much of what we know is that a doll is not likely a threat, but the face that looks human but isn't unsettles our most basic human instincts. Why is it that clowns are just wrong? We feel it. Good, decent people see a clown and there's something just wrong about that. Or a little baby doll that's maybe aged a little bit. Like there's whole horror movies made about baby dolls. Why is that so freaky? Why is that a spiritual issue? It's a spiritual issue because sometimes we don't just ascribe life to things. The enemy loves to feed that instinct and will actually sometimes talk back. And this happens all over the world in every culture on the planet. And we think it's innocuous and silly, but it's not silly when suddenly you've got a major problem with spiritual warfare in your house because that's gone just a step too far. So I started researching a step too far. And this goes down a rabbit hole. You can go there if you want. One story from our house is we, Katie had nightmares when she was young. So we got her a dream catcher and really innocently stuff is just like All you got to do is know that the dream catcher catches all your bad dreams and you can go to bed. I think a lot of times parents do this because we want to give assurance to our children. We want to help high anxiety go to low anxiety. So we make stuff up. Here, sleep with Gus the bear. That was my parents. And you can just hug Gus the bear and he'll keep you safe if you think there might be monsters in the closet. And Gus the bear became my friend. Gus the bear and I would talk. We would hang out. And as you get older, you put away the ways of a child and you accept the ways of an adult. But sometimes people have trouble letting that go, right? So Gus the bear got pretty nappy and nasty and stinky and smelly. And eventually Gus the bear just disappeared. And I don't know what happened to him. But you get over the trauma and you move on with life. But you can see how easily humans take inanimate objects and make them religious. Now have your parents reinforce that and say, oh, no, 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 we must put offerings before the tree so Santa Claus can eat them. And then you wake up the next morning and they're gone. Oh, there must be Santa Claus. When you have adults reinforcing the idol worship because it's an actual religion for them, and it goes to the next generation or the third generation, this can affect people for a thousand generations, says the Bible. Like This is a massive problem when these things happen. And this is how false religions get built because then the next generation adds more and more flair to it and it gets bigger and bigger. Without gods, any family legend or community story can become a false religion. Anyone. Think of to- old towns that have ghost stories. And then you start taking the next generation, now there's ghost tours. And then the next generation, they're seeing the ghosts, they're talking to the ghosts, they're having seances. It just, next, in two, three generations, it's a religion. And it used to just be a stupid thing that you told your buddy to freak them out so that you could have kind of challenges with each other. So fake stuff becomes real. One of the best examples of this is Robert the doll. Again, horror movies, if you don't waste your time on them. But Robert the doll was in Key West, Florida. This kid was talking to the doll and the parents swore they could hear the doll walking around. And then the kid started blaming the doll for all the bad stuff that was happening in the house including people getting hurt and things getting broken and all this. So you wonder to some degree that doll still sits in a museum, tons of creepy ghost stories around it all over the place. Neighbors said they could see the doll up in the window, looking at them and turning its head as they go by. There's claims that Robert the doll's facial expression would change. What? And this is again, inspiration for a lot of creepy movies. Humans have an astounding ability to ascribe life to things when we don't have life to give. It's how we pretend to be God. It's how we make the same sin that Satan made. Is we think we have the power to give life. And we imagine it until it's actually real in our head. And it's fake. It's empty. And God says, get rid of that stuff. Spiritually, though, we live in a world where this is all around us. Just like the Israelites are going to go into a world where false worship is all, all around them and everywhere you go. I, and Mandy thought I was going to get into like everything being a false idol. I'm actually talking about objects still. But there's a whole conversation here around idols being things we worship, like anything that comes before God, right? Any entertainment, any hobby, any TV show that comes in front of God can be a false idol. But let's just deal with little idols that are physical objects. That too is a major problem. Commandment number two, don't do these. Verse four, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Keep in mind, this is still that commentary on commandment number two. If they fail to destroy them, they're going to then make covenants and they're going to marry them. And we're going to see that a small number of these things are going to be still left. Archaeology doesn't show a lot of Moloch or Ashtaroth remains in this area. So one of the claims is, well, that was never a problem in the, this part of the world. Or, like the Bible says, the Israelites came in and they wiped out nearly all evidence of these religions. And that's actually what we find in the archaeological record. There's very few of these examples or statues that can be dug up in, the, in Israel today. But all around Israel, we find them everywhere, a common culture group of people that made these statues and had them. Uh, one of the statues found in Egypt of Moloch actually got transported to the Colosseum and was set up in front of the Colosseum, much to the dismay of, of the Catholic Church, uh, who we still would say Moloch worship is not a good thing. But they actually have some of these on display now and they're, they're digging them up and bringing them back. It's kind of sad. They should dig them up and destroy them. But we never destroy old things um, because we put them in glass cases and hide them in a museum, just like Robert the doll, if you want to go to Key West and visit. Um, after being in Babylon, Israel then comes back to this prom- promised land and they're going to do the same things. What's interesting with these for this first paragraph is, let me read you a paragraph from Ezra 9 that almost mirrors the first few sentences of this chapter almost exactly. Ezra 9 says, "'When these things were done, "'the leaders came to me saying, "'The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites "'have not separated themselves "'from the people of the land. "'With respect to the abominations of the Canaanites, "'the Hittites, the Parasites, the Jebusites, "'the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Egyptians and the Amorites, for they've taken some of their sons and daughters as wives for themselves and their sons, so that the holy seed is mixed with the people of those lands. Indeed, the hand of these leaders, rulers, had been foremost in the trespass. It wasn't the average Joe that was the worst. It was the leadership that was the worst. Imagine how frustrating it is when you see your people easily fall into idol worship. Instead of being a chosen people set apart, they're compromised people that go after other gods. And that's what happened to Israel. But chosen is still the goal. I'll now move on. Verse six. Here's the reason why you don't do this stuff. For you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the people on the face of the earth. Is that because they're better than the rest of the earth? Or is it because God through them makes them something special for the earth? verse 7 the lord did not set his love on you nor did nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people for you were the least of all the people so there's the answer to your question they're actually the least of all people that's why god picked them they were losers but because the lord loves you and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers the lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage from the hand of pharaoh the king The rationale goes back to what we read last week. The goal is to limit our behavior to respond to God's love. God chooses you. That's part of our relationship with God is a choice. But God starts the dance by choosing us. I love that idea. Yes, we choose God, but God first chooses us. I like the phrase in there that says he did not set his love on you. It's in the past tense. God already set his love on them. It's he's made his decision that he loves us and he's already done what's taken. And that's always been God's relationship with humans. Even today, God's sacrifice on the cross has already happened. He's already done his part. It's our response to it that's going to change our eternal destiny. That we are a special treasure. That's one of those verses, if you have a list of my identity in Christ and you list them all out, you gather a verse like that and say, no, you're actually a special treasure to God. A cherished treasure to God. If your identity comes in Christ, then that's a truth you should know. Just bake that into your soul. We're grafted into God's family. Romans 11 implies we are prized property. I would say that, you know, I grew up in a small town, so you'd go to the county fair and you'd have your prized animal that would win things. But if I say you're God's prized cow, that would offend a lot of people. Um, But it's you have that thing that you're really proud of, and that's how God at, interacts with us. He's really proud of us. He set his love on you, kashak. It, kashak implies adjoining to, an adherence to, a desire and a delight in. I love that translation. He set his love on you. Um, he wants to adhere and join with you. He wants to be part of your life. Verse 8, because, why? The Lord loves you. Ahava, it's the second use we've seen of that word in the entire Bible. We've seen a lot of the use of the word love, but this particular love in the Hebrew ahava, the first time we saw that love, it was Jacob's love for Rachel, a kind of love that adheres and bonds you to other people. It's when two become one flesh and God has that kind of love for us. So it's a marital love in the light of a covenant. You make a covenant, you're bonded forever. That's the forever kind of love. In the Greeks, they had a word that we know better, which is agape, that unconditional love. But the ahava is an unconditional love that comes under a covenant, right? And you get married and now that's it for the rest of our lives. And that's that kind of binding that happens in that. I actually like ahava better. I think it's a more powerful word than agape. He brought you, he redeemed you, he bought and paid for you. And you get all that theology baked right in there. When we recognize love, it's much, much easier to destroy the things that threaten that love, which goes back to the first set of verses. When he says, I love you, that's his rationale for destroying the false gods. Remember, this is all justification for why he wants them to do that. So if I see things that attack that kind of covenantial love that I have with other people, heck yeah, I'm going to fight that. I don't want those things in my life that are going to get in the way of my covenant with other people. Um, verse nine, Therefore, know that the Lord, your God, he is God, the faithful God, three uses of God, by the way, who keeps covenant and a mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face and to destroy them. He will not be slack with those who hate him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you shall keep the commandment, the statutes, the judgments, which I command you today to observe them. Again, we see the use of that to the face. It's panim in the Hebrew. It's that idea that when we do things that offend God, it comes right up in front of God and it gets in the way of God even seeing us, which is why it's so important that God forgives us and redeems us because it takes that sin, that idolatry out of the relationship between us so that we can be seeing God face to face. Um, And God deals with people up to a thousand generations. Again, we're talking about that idol worship so then we see the blessings of being obedient. Here's another reason why you do what God asks you to do. Verse 12, then it shall come to pass because you listen to these judgments and keep them and do them. So don't just be hearers of God's word. God's word also be doers of God's word. That the Lord your God will keep with you the covenant and the mercy which he swore to your fathers. He will love you, bless you and multiply you. And he will also bless the fruit of your womb. That's for the women, and the fruit of your land your grain and your new wine and your oil, and the increase of your cattle and the offspring of your flock in the land which he has served to your fathers to give to you. When Israel lifts up God to the world, their prosperity is a badge of verification to the world when it happens. Now, these verses, verses 12 and 13, are really, again, tricky verses these verses get taken out of the context. And this is basically the foundation of the prosperity gospel movement, which generally hits people that are of lower income classes around the world. And it's been around since forever. It just keeps coming back with a new name on it. And the prosperity gospel is this. If you get what God tells you to do, you'll get filthy, stinking rich. And if you want to get filthy, stinking rich, you should give more and more of your money to the church to show that you're on good terms with God. So it's a pyramid scheme of sorts. It's humans taking religion and saying give me more and more of your money so our church can show off how rich we are to the rest of the world and prove that God blesses people with wealth. And that same logic means the pastor gets paid more money than anybody else. And that same logic means maybe the pastor should have his own private jet just to show how rich he is because the closer you are to God, the more rich you are and that reinforces the stereotype. It's a pyramid scheme. So here, I want to point out, it's very simple to debunk that worldview. The you in here under verse six, for you are a holy people, is a plural use of the word you. And you can even see it in the English translation. You there means the nation of Israel are a holy people. That means both the priests and the people. And when you see the description, it means the people who make babies, the, uh, the people who work the land, the people who keep the trees this is the entire nation is going to be blessed. And because it's Israel as a chosen people, it's a distinct and different group of people than anyone who's not in Israel. So just that idea that it's plural means that the modern equivalent does not translate to individual behavior and how much you tithe to your church. It's not, that's not apples to apples. It's not a translation to make it modern, and nor is that a translation to an individual church at all it's actually to translate it accurate would be an entire nation that bows and serves God should expect to see prosperity and wealth. And historically, for the last 5000 years, that's kind of held true. Nations generally rise as they are Christian nations and serve the Lord. And as they follow, when they get prosperity, they tend to forget about the Lord. And the nations sink back into oblivion. And we've seen that happen for 1000s of years. Nations will rise and fall based on the goodness of of their leadership and how they make their laws. And that's just a natural effect that we see all over the place. Um, Individuals, I'll give you the reverse contradiction to prosperity gospels. If this were true, then the holiest people in the Bible should be the wealthiest people in the Bible. But that is not what we see. The Bible consistently, the holier the people, Elijah, John the Baptist, tend to live the most impoverished lives because they don't need it. It's a spiritual wealth that they're after. It's not a worldly wealth that they're after. So if John the Baptist is eating locusts in the wilderness, that does not fit with a prosperity gospel. He should be filthy rich and driving a Rolls Royce, but he's not. He's driving, a doesn't even have his own camel or donkey. And he was the greatest of all the prophets. Jesus himself had nowhere to lay his head. Even foxes have their dens, but Jesus himself doesn't. Right? So you shall be blessed above all people. There shall not be a male or female barren among you or among your livestock. And the Lord will take away from you all sickness. That's funny. An entire country should expect to see less sickness when they're following after God. And they should expect to see then in the reverse, more sickness if they're falling away from God. Do with that what you will. And it will afflict you with none of the terrible diseases of Egypt, which you have known, but will lay on them all those who hate you. Also, you shall destroy all the people whom the Lord your God delivers over to you. Your eyes shall have no pity on them, nor shall you serve their gods, for that will be a snare to you. So he's repeating what he said at the beginning of the chapter. Don't feel bad or guilty for getting rid of sin in your life. I think that's a good spiritual application. If you're getting rid of stuff that's causing you to sin, don't feel bad about that. Don't hesitate. Don't wish you still had your old Led Zeppelin albums. That's one of my problems. They're not doing you any good. And you still got them in your head too. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Get rid of idols, replace it with the law of God and the, the fellowship of God, praying to God and worshiping God. Those are really good fillers. And if you add them into your life, they do push out and make less and less room for false idols. Choose what and who you spend your time with and how you allocate your time is really important. This is tough because sometimes we have to deal with people in our life that are big time wasters. They're not drawing us closer to Christ. In fact, a lot of times they're pulling us further away from Christ. And at some level you think, well, is there a ministry to be had there? If that's the case, and if you're wondering about that, simply call the person up and say, hey, do you want to do a Bible study with me? And if they say no, that's an answer to your question. There's really not much of a ministry going on there because God's got to still do something on their heart. Keep the doors open. We don't judge people like that. We were at that point at one point in our life too. But you choose who you spend your time with. But if they're seeking after false idols, you got to really be careful and considerate and pray and have God give you some direction on how much time you want to spend with people that are following after false things. Because birds of a feather flock together. And then you got to worry about your kids too. Verse 17, if you should say in your heart, these nations are greater than I, how can I dispossess them? You shall not be afraid of them, but you shall remember what the Lord your God did to Pharaoh and all of Egypt. Remember, Egypt was a way bigger dog on the geopolitical map than any of these little nations we're dealing with now. So when it says, remember what I did to Egypt, that's like saying, remember what I did to Russia. So don't be too worried about Lithuania, right? And that's kind of what he's saying here. God's had a lot bigger victories than the ones you're scared of. Verse 19, the great trials, which your eyes saw the signs and wonders, the mighty hand, the outstretched arm by which the Lord, your God brought you out. So shall the Lord, your God do to all the people who, of whom you are afraid. The physical reality can be daunting. The solution is to remember what God's already done, that he's good, faithful, and powerful. Wouldn't it be just cool if we could just say, I click that button, and then we just think that way for the rest of our life? It sounds It's such an easy answer, but it's so hard to bake that in. Verse 20, moreover, the Lord your God will send the hornet among them until those who are left, who hide themselves from you, are destroyed. You shall not be terrified of them, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. Again, great verse. <laughs> you shall not be scared, for the Lord your God, the great and awesome God, is among you. And the Lord your God will drive out those nations before you little by little. You will be unable to destroy them at once, lest the beasts of the field become numerous to you. That's an interesting thing. He's giving them prophetic uh, insight as to how they're going to take the Holy Land. They're not going to take on all nine, ten of these people groups at the same time. They're going to take on one, settle the cities, take on another, settle the cities. This is going to be a long journey for the nation to kind of do this little by little. Um, They're not going to beat them up all at once and then have to try to do everything at once. In our lives, it works the same way. We don't have to fight all our battles today. We fight the battle God puts in our head. God, what's standing between me and you? And God will kind of put something on your head and you'll be like, yeah, I know that's the thing that's standing between me and you. I get it. Please give me the strength to overcome that. Um, I like to think of this with new believers a lot because new believers will often feel guilty about everything. And it's like, okay, just stop. God loves you. You're a precious commodity to him. You're his prized cow. You don't have to deal with everything at once. Just deal with the one thing that you think is the biggest thing between you and God today. Deal with that. Pray about it. Get an accountability brother or sister that you can kind of check in on with every week on it. Pray the Lord takes away the desire for it so that you don't have to. And then you can give God the glory for just taking away the desire for it. But if he's working on this thing over here, two things will happen. One, your unbelieving friends will think you're ridiculous to try to get rid of that thing. Your hyper-believing friends or self-righteous kinds of people will tell you to get rid of this other thing that you're not feeling convicted about at the time. You still got to follow your path with God. It's an individual relationship. That's the only thing you can do, right? And you pray for both of those groups of people. Verse 23, but the Lord your God will deliver them over to you, and will in, inflict defeat upon them. It doesn't say he will defeat them. He says he will inflict defeat upon them until they're destroyed. He will beat them down to the point where they realize who God is before they're destroyed. It says, in the end, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Lord, the Lord is God, right? That doesn't mean everyone's going to heaven. That means God will show people his authority before he makes judgment on them. And that's what he's going to do with these people too. He will inflict defeat upon them until they are destroyed. And again, the they there, it's questionable. Is they the human being or is they the idols that he's destroying? That he's proving to people that these idols are empty and dead. Verse 24, and he will deliver their kings into your hand and you will utterly destroy their name from under heaven. It is true. We do not know the line of kings of the Girgashites. They're gone, promise kept. We don't most of these people we know next to nothing about other than the gods they worshiped and the idols they left behind. but their names, their legacy, gone. No one shall be able to stand against you until you've destroyed them. So of those people that are listed, none of them are still on the earth anymore. And there are no people groups that are descended from these people. They are gone. A lot of other people groups from this era we still have around, the Assyrians, the Persians, the Egyptians, They're still actually around, and descendants of them are still on the earth, and they still largely have the land they had had back at this time. Verse 25: You shall burn the carved images, their gods. Again, he's repeating what he said at the beginning. With fire, I don't know how else you would burn them, but with fire is added in there. You shall covet this. You shall not covet the silver of gold that is on them, nor take it for yourselves, lest you be snared by it. So don't sell those things God's telling you to get rid of just get rid of them destroy them don't make profit off of those things you're supposed to be getting destroyed for it is an abomination to the lord your God nor shall you bring an abomination into your house lest you are doomed to be to destruction like it and you shall utterly detest it and utterly abhor it for it's an accursed thing that's the commentary on idol worship that Moses gives commandment number two You should hate idols. Not only just don't serve them, but you should hate them. You should be repulsed by things that get between you and God and have nothing to do with them. Again, sometimes easier said than done. You may be working on something else in your life other than idol worship right now, but at some point, God's going to show you something that you put in front of God and that you wish you had more time with than you have more time with God. And when that thing happens, when God brings you to that point in life, deal with it, and deal with it quick, and again, that final verse in that chapter is, lest you come to destruction. This is a question of your eternal soul. Remember the Lord your God. Every commandment which I command you today, Deuteronomy 8 verse 1, every commandment which I command you today, must, you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. Same justification we've seen before. The reason we follow the law is for our own benefit okay? It's a refrain that's going to keep coming up in Deuteronomy. It indicates now that we see that refrain at the beginning of chapter eight, that that was a good chapter break, that we're in a new topic now. The If it's like Deuteronomy three and four, then we might be hitting commandment three in Moses's teaching, right? Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Don't go after empty things. So where false idols are empty things that you worship outside yourself, taking the Lord's name is empty worship thinking that you're the thing that should be worshiped. You put your own thinking ahead of God's thinking. This is so insidious that it happens to all the people all the time. It's about living out your faith. There's three sections. We need to remember that the Lord's our God. We need to keep the law and we need to be cautious. Those three sections are all all in the first sentence. But that's how we're going to go through the rest of the chapters, just in those three pieces. So this is how we live that idea of chapter three. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. So then here Moses gives positive things we can do so that we don't take on the Lord's name in vain. And remember that was taking on the Lord's name is like holding up a banner and saying, I'm under, I'm in this camp. So when you call yourself a Christian or a believer in Christ, you've taken up the Lord's name. Don't do that falsely. And don't do it like where you really are following your own heart, doing everything you want to do and then saying, well, the Bible told me to do that. And it's really pretty much you. Um, Don't do that at all, and here's three ways to avoid it. Verse two is the first way. You shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness to humble you and to test you, to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. God led you, (laughs) and the way he led people, instead of prosperity gospel, he actually led them to be humbled, and to realize that they were incapable of building their own nation. In fact, left to their own devices, they would have died in the wilderness of starvation in an ugly, sad way, and they'd all be skeletons by Mount Sinai right by now. But that's not what happened at all. Hunger, then, can be God's hand in in preparing and testing people. Not just physical hunger, spiritual hunger. You first get saved, you have that big rise of enthusiasm, and then suddenly you're hungry. And you're like, I want more, but I just feel like it's not there. Like you come home from Bible camp on a high, and then you go back to school and you realize, oh, it's still life as I need it. And that hunger is there. And that's what replaced utter satisfaction and oblivion before that. I used to just be a stupid kid, but now I'm a stupid kid that wants more in life. Where did that come from? Well, it came from God. That's a hunger and a humility that you can't feed yourself you got to get fed through the Word of God, which is why we all sit here and study the Word of God. Humbled, the word anah in the Hebrew, is to be afflicted, to be bowed down, to be browbeaten or brought low. How hard is it for God to humble you? For some believers, it's really easy. They're already humble. They don't think much of themselves. God loves working with those people. A lot less work to do with those people. But the prideful and the haughty, it may take decades to browbeat them down until they realize they're not that special. Without God they're nothing and they're not that important. For a rich person that succeeded in this world, that's really hard to understand. Harder than a camel going through the eye of a needle, which happens every day in the needle gates of Jerusalem, but it's rare and it's difficult and there's a lot of spitting. Right? So humbled ana is to be brought low God's education starts with us when we understand our truthful position with him. We got to start in truth. He is God. We are not. In fact, there might be the only thing we really know as humans. Everything else, we have to kind of trust God's word on everything else. But to even begin to trust God's word, we have to understand we're not that great. We're not that special. Nobody owes us anything. And most humans could care less about you. That's tough to absorb, but it's also kind of true. And I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but outside of Christ, we're just flesh sacks walking around. And then we die and they huck us in the ground and we rot. In Christ, we're a spiritual being that is beyond value, precious, so precious that God created all of eternity, all of existence all of reality, so that our souls could find our way to him and we could live eternally in relationship with him, bonded and adhered to God. That's marvelous. So he humbled you, verse three, allowed you to hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Once we're low, God can start to feed us. I remember like first going to Bible study because Steph made me and it was like, I'll just sit through this thing. And then I started to realize I learned something. Like it took a few weeks because I was prideful. But then I learned something. I was like, wow, that really sunk in. And then you get good Bible study that actually teaches the Word, not like one verse a night, but like a chapter, two chapters. And then you start realizing, man, every week I'm getting something out of that. And then you miss a week and realize you're hungry again. And you go, oh, that's right. This is a spiritual thing. The more I do this, the more God fills. And I'm less hungry. And then you realize this is just like spiritual, like, I just want to soak up everything God's willing to give me. Even the dogs get the crumbs from the table. And remember the woman that's, that, that that asks that? Oh, I think I have that in a couple pages. I'll tell you right now. The woman comes in and Jesus is like, I can't give my word and teaching to you. You're not that important. And she's like, I get it. Truthful relationship. I'm not that important. But even the dogs get the crumbs. I'll take whatever crumbs you got. And he's like, boom, your faith just healed you. You're taken care of. And he fills her up. Humility leads to a relationship with God because we start from a place of truth. Fed you with manna, which you did not know. God's provision often comes from places we don't know and we don't really understand. I don't know why that guy came down at the apartment building so Amy could get in and hand out her movies. Like, I don't know where that came from, but God provides sometimes from places we just don't understand and we just don't know it, which proves to us that we're not capable of providing those things ourselves. And if you can get comfortable with that, you can get comfortable with the idea that God actually does everything. And we can just live in that place where we are humble, but we're fed. And we understand that feeding comes from places we really don't understand that well. I think that's just such a wonderful idea that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds by the mouth of the Lord. Your garments did not wear out on you, nor did did your foot swell these 40 years, nor did your foot swell. Okay, they're walking around the desert for 40 years. You'd think their feet would be ribbons by the end of that, but they're not. And magically their clothes just don't wear out after 40 years. I don't know. I get holes in my knees and I only have pants for two, three years, and they wear out. And he's reminding them that some of those places, they, it was more than just the manna and the water. He actually kept their clothes in good shape for 40 years. How does that happen? You should know that in your heart, that as man chastens his son, so the Lord chastens you. Man does not live by bread alone, of course, is Jesus's third response to the devil in the wilderness? again, I warned you, Deuteronomy is where he got all three of his responses from. So this is one of those. Uh, the passage, uh, I'll go to, oh, I didn't put my reference down. I think this is Matthew. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was hungry. Gives new meaning to that, right? He was hungry. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, if you're the son of God, command these stones to become bread. And he answered and said, it's written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Jesus was in the wilderness to hear from God, not to hear from Satan. So in getting hungry, in fasting, and actually getting physically hungry, he's getting comfortable with that. And Satan's like, man, just eat something, have some food. And he's like, no, actually, I'm okay with being hungry. This is the opposite of prosperity gospel. Just a few verses later, a lot of times misreading in the Bible, you just need to just keep reading a few verses and there's your answer. And that's exactly what's going on here. We need to be okay with being hungry and humbled. And that's a good place to be. And when you can be okay with that, God can do miracles in your life, but he gets 100% of the glory because we know we're not capable. And we're just not that good at it. And that's an okay place to be. We don't have to be shameful or lower ourselves either, because we don't have to lower ourselves under where God put us. You're saved by grace, you're redeemed, you're a precious child of God. That's the truth. Whether or not you feel it, you feel above or below that status, that's the status. And in that place, we can start to work with God. And I love how Jesus responds, like he's hungry, he gets the temptation, and he just quotes Deuteronomy, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God what replaces physical food is the Bible, the word of God recorded and written down from us. And Jesus is talking about Deuteronomy. He's talking about the Bible that he had, the law and the prophets. And we get the gospels, which is what Jesus said. So that's his words, largely translated in four different versions for us. And we get the epistles, people that are anointed by God that are saying God's advice to other believers. We get an inside look at the first generation church and all of that put together is our Bible. That's what we are filled with. That's what we proceed. What proceeds from the mouth of God is what fills us. Man shall not live by by bread alone, but, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. The idea of live there is the same idea. It's two sides of the same coin. So it's not bread that feeds us, but it's every word that does feed us, and we get our life from one or the other you can't serve both God and man. Or mammon is actually the word. You you kind of, this gets down to the basic of what you are choose. Choose yourself and your own flesh, commandment three, don't do that. Or you choose God. See how this is comment commentary on commandment three? And it really, Moses is getting it right down to that idea, that same idea. When he says, don't take the Lord's name in vain, it means don't call yourself a follower of God and then serve yourself all the time okay to be humble. It's okay to be hungry. And that's living that commandment out. That's what that looks like. Sadly, many people that we know still live for bread. They still live for that stuff that they get every day, the material things, and they entirely forget the word of God in their life, or they don't even pay attention to it. Happily though, we do also know some people, a lot of people in this room that actually live by the word of God, or we're trying to, we're doing our best to do that. Every word that, that, uh, that comes out of the, the word of God is in that sentence too. The word every. Uh, every word that comes from God is important. So that's his actual words that he spoke at Sinai. That's the confirmed prophets speaking through Moses and the other prophets. That's the histories that we're supposed to be remembering. That's Jesus's actual word confirmed by his resurrection. So that's history and prophetic all in one. And it's the advice of those people that had committed miracles. All the New Testament epistles are are written by people that God confirmed through miracles through them. So and because of those miracles, the early Christians took those people's letters more seriously because God anoints the people he's speaking through. So it becomes precious. Jesus told her, this is the lady that came to the table, first I should feed the children, my own family, the Jews. It isn't right to take food from the children and throw it to the dogs. Such a harsh thing to say to somebody. And she replied, that's true, Lord, but even the dogs under the table are allowed to eat the scraps from the children's plates. She just got it. She just gets it. Begging for God's word and asking him for you to say something. That's why we fast sometimes. That's why we pray, is that we go to God and we beg for him to speak into our lives. That's why we read the Bible It's why we fellowship with other believers. So if if we're having a tough time, God can speak through that other believer into our life with encouragement or admonishment. It's why we worship. It's another way to talk to God. Our dreams and our goals are so easy to pine after, but they're not fruitful. Our career, our relationships, all easy to pine after, but they don't lead to the same things that God leads us to. So the answer to that, step one, remember God. That's the first solution. Remember God. The next passage is about is about doing that too. therefore you shall keep the commandments. So first remember God and then verse six, keep the commandments. We actually live a life that kind of goes according to the word. Walk in his ways and fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and waters, of fountains and springs that flow out of the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley of figs and vines and tree, or I'm sorry, vines and fig trees and pomegranates. How pomegranates makes it into the list is amazing, because there are better fruits in the world, but God must love pomegranates. And if anybody can tell me why, I'd be really interested in that. A land of olive oil and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, and a land whose stones are iron, and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And when you have eaten, you are full, and then you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. In short serve ye the Lord your God and all these things will be added unto you. Serve God first. It's not that God has a problem with material wealth. And I think that's what Moses is saying here. I don't know, we can talk about it later, but I think that's what I'm reading. It's okay to be hungry and humble. And if you're hungry and humble, God doesn't have any problem blessing you with abundance and wealth, especially the nation of Israel who's being addressed here. God can test us in hunger and then bring us into a good place from there. He leads us. The prophet who has a dream, tell him to dream. He who has my word, let him speak my word faithfully. What is chaff to the wheat, says the Lord, Jeremiah 22, 28. We keep God's commandments in word. We keep it. We guard it. And other people can do whatever they want to do. You want to pursue your career. You want to pursue that relationship. You want to pursue this, that, and the other thing. Great. I'm pursuing God. That's what I'm doing with my whole life. That's what I'm going to keep to. And I'm okay with anybody else following whatever else I want to follow. But I'm gonna, as for me and my house, we're gonna serve the Lord, Joshua. If they focus on remembering the word and keeping the commandments, God promises material blessings to Israel. So he's clearly not against material success. So it's not a yes or no prosperity gospel. There is an element where sometimes God just blesses people. Or you think, man, I was in this place, but now I got a place to live, I got a roof over my head, I got food in my belly. I'm blessed with relationships that I care about. Everything's good. And God can be abundant and make us abundant when we start from the right place. Wheat and barley are both grown in flat areas. This is interesting. Vines and fig trees would be grown on hill country or area that's not good for agriculture, like plowed agriculture. And then all the wilderness, of course, would be full of minerals. That area of Israel today that we think of as desert and nastiness, it's actually one of the richest metal resources on the planet in one condensed area of the world. So we always see that as, oh, that's just kind of junky land in Israel down in the south. But listen to this. In the Timna Valley, which is south of the Dead Sea, uh, or or the desert of Ereba, it's been mined since 500 BC. We have evidence of ancient mining going on in this area of the world. It's still getting mined, but there's evidence of over 10,000 copper mines in that one small area of the world. And they're still mining it today, right? The holes just keep getting bigger, and there's just more and more copper there. It's almost a miracle how much metal is in this one little spot on the planet. Iron mines? Well, that's interesting. There wasn't a lot of iron that was mined in the ancient world in this part of the world, but the mines in Maktashash by the Dead Sea, I don't know if I'm saying that right, in 1955, after Israel took the land over back over, they, they brought in modern surveillance techniques, and they believe there's over 15 million tons of iron still in those mountains. Same area of the world. Very, this is like the size, by the way, of Rhode Island. We are not talking about a big piece of land here. The gold mines, this is crazy too. They don't mention gold here, they mention it later. January 8th, 2020, Ophir, um, is believed, they they dug up or found a gold mine in this part of the world that's believed to be partially dug by Solomon. So they're trying to do archaeology on this site right now to determine if those are Solomon's gold mines, from which he dug some of the greatest gold resources in the world, right out of this area. Other people believe he got stuff shipped up from Africa because the Queen of Sheba came to say hello to him. He probably would have known the Queen of Sheba a lot better if he made all his wealth from her. So his wealth probably came from Israel, and they think they're finding those mines right now. And here's one other thing. When you talk about mineral resources, people used to, we didn't used to use oil or petroleum like we do today. Yet, even way back in history, if you go into the Mediterranean, just outside of Israel, we found some of the the areas that we didn't think used to have oil. They've now dug or used techniques to see a little deeper. They believe now that there are, since 2004, they've begun to dig wells. They now have 470 oil rigs out in the Mediterranean sucking up oil from area that's been recently discovered under Israel. They're about to get filthy rich just on their oil alone. God clearly provided physical resources to the land of Israel like no other place on earth. And he's talking about fig trees but next to the fig trees is some of the greatest wealth of metals we've ever seen. Seek first the kingdom of God and all these things will be added unto you. The oil and the gold resources sat under that country for years without humans knowing about it. Some of the abundance God wants to bring into your life is already there and you don't even know about it. He's going to reveal it to you over time. I think that's the coolest thing about the oil because it's not in the Bible verse. getting off the Bible a little bit with that, but it's like God just put that oil there so that today's Israelites would have abundance. And there was hundreds of years of other nations living and and holding and living on that land. And God just had stuff reserved for his Israelites when they came back and that they'd be able to just dig it up and find it. I think that's so cool. Beware is the third thing, verse 11. So we've got Um, just these three different kind of commentaries. Keeping the commandments. And then verse 11, we are beware. So we want to be wary of something in order to not take up the Lord's name in vain. Beware that you do not forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments. So we keep them and then we beware to not keep them. So Moses is making sure we get this point his judgments and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you've eaten and you're full and you've built beautiful houses to dwell in them. And when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold, see there it mentions gold, are multiplied. And all that you have is multiplied when your heart is lifted up. And then you forget the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. You just forget that you used to be humble. You used to be okay with being hungry. Verse 15, who led you Through the great and terrible wilderness, in which there were fiery serpents and scorpions, and thirsty land where there was no water, who brought water for you out of a filthy flinty rock, and who fed you in the wilderness with manna which your fathers did not know, that he might humble you, and that he might test you to do good in the end, and then you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gained me this wealth. Beware of that. Beware of that. There's a full circle in the teaching, do you see it? It starts with humility. It ends with humility. It's a full circle. Verse two, verse 16, you should connect those two dots. The purpose of humility is to test us so that we don't forget God. We remember God in all things. When when you finally get your college degree and you're ready to go take on the world, don't forget that four years ago you had no college degree. God gave you the resources you needed for that. When you become the boss of a company, don't forget you didn't found that company and start it. Or maybe you did found a company and it actually makes a profit at some point. Don't forget that God sustained you through all of that. You didn't have life emergencies. You were able to put the time in to do what needed to be done. Then you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand gave me this wealth. I worked hard for my money. Beware of that. It's a a lie right from the enemy. It's the opposite of what God teaches us to think and do. But how many people around us, how many people do we know that really believe that as a worldview? I did this. I made this happen. We either remember God and we humble ourselves to him and we give him the glory for everything we have, or we lift ourselves up, we abandon his law, and we have pride and think otherwise and we think we did it ourselves. They're opposite sides of the same coin. And you can't have one without the other. This is the sin, by the way, that Satan fell to pride. He thought he could do things just as good as God, and that he was just as important as God. And that is how Satan falls. But we're not on that passage right now. We'll finish this one up. Verse 18, and you should remember the Lord your God, for He, for it is he who gives you power to get wealth. If you're not sick, that's God. If you're able to go to work today, that's because you have breath that God gave you, if or legs that work. Sorry, honey. Getting sick sometimes is a way I think God can humble us. Because you get sick and you're like, I can't do anything. All I can do is lay here and look at the ceiling. So when you're not sick anymore, remember that feeling. Remember that if it wasn't for your health that God gives you, you could still be laying there looking at a ceiling. Everything you're able to do is because God gives you that ability to do it. Then it shall be If you by any means forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and serve them and worship them, I testify against you this day that you shall surely perish. Strong words from Moses. As the nations which the Lord destroys before you, so you shall perish because you would not be obedient to the voice of the Lord your God. If you're not going to be on God's team, you don't get God's protection. And it's that simple. If you don't want to play God's game, there's just a matter of time, there's a clock ticking on you. And sometimes I think that clock is ticking faster than it was when I was a kid. The power to get wealth is something we don't possess. And there's millions of things that have to be functioning in our bodies alone for us to go and do that. There's millions of things that have to function in our economy around us for us to be able to do that. There's things that have to happen genetically for a plant to grow out of the ground, for us to make wealth out of a seed. And we don't have control over any of those things, much less the weather the resources, the job market, the housing market, none of it. You forget the Lord and you follow after other gods. To to the Bible, there isn't a third option, which is where you go back to that thing that idol worship is more than just little figurines in your house. There's no third option. You either follow God or you're following after idols and you're pursuing them. You might not have a little statue in your house, but there's something that's out there that you're following that's not God. So don't take up the Lord's name in vain. If you're going to follow him, follow him. If you're not, don't, and don't claim it. So the issue is of the heart. It's a lifetime struggle. I think all three of Moses' points in this chapter, remember God, keep the commandments, beware to not keep the commandments. And beware of this pride that sneaks in really easily, because that's where false worship comes from. You shall perish is a promise of punishment. It is a it's as much of a promise as that God loves you. <laughs> God loves you, but if you're not going to serve him, you're going to perish. right? If you're not going to obey the rules of my household and you're a five-year-old, you might end up getting a spanking. right? Even though I love you, sometimes something has to happen because you can't continue to have the evil happening. You shall surely perish in case you didn't get the you shall perish part. It's in there twice. Moses is making a claim there. Commandment three is don't be fake. Moses has now detailed it. He's he's given you ways to not be fake, clear direction on how to do that. So you have to, and then do it. You don't just take up God's name in your heart. You actually take up God's name and you live that lifestyle out. If you don't do that, it's false. And the core way to do that is that hunger and humility that we saw in verse two and verse 16. So really practical advice from Moses there he goes again, just nailing it. It kind of made me sad that we're in the fifth book of Moses, like we're going to move on to Joshua, but Moses has got such practical advice and it keeps coming back to your heart again and again and again. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we love you. And these words can be hard to hear, Lord, because we are all struggling with how to follow you and how to serve you. But Lord, know our hearts, clear out any wicked way in them. Help us to just love you and love each other as much as we can. Lord, uh, uh, cleanse us from iniquity. Forgive us for our sins. Lord, help us to know what our sins are so we can confess them to you. Help us to understand what they are, but not to reduce ourselves beneath a precious gift that you love us. Help us to know who we are in truth before you. Uh, And in truth, Lord, help us to be humble. Um, And in truth, let us know that we are precious to you. Uh, Lord, what a crystal clear place to be uh, Lord, help us to see that through a, through a glass, not through a glass dimly, but through a well-cleaned set of spectacles that we can just understand, Lord, that we are, we are no less than your precious child and we are no more than a humble human. Uh, and we can be in that place and be satisfied. We don't need uh, physical anything to satisfy or to fill that, Lord, but with every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Lord, help us to be uh, like our teacher, Jesus. Help us to serve Uh, as you did when you walked the earth, Lord, that you uh, served humbly. Uh, You did not serve with pride and arrogance, even though you had every reason to be haughty over people as the son of God. But Lord, you just never did that. You never elevated yourself above other people, but you came to serve and you came to seek and find the lost and bring them into your fold. Lord, we just want to be your sheep. We want to follow you and we want to come to your word and just be in, in love with you, Lord. So help us to do that. Uh, Help us to see past ourselves, to humble ourselves, Lord, and to serve you and remember you and to keep your laws. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.